Let me ask you a question this morning, and you can raise your hand on this one. Have you ever tried to put something together without following the written instructions? Okay, we have a pretty big club. <laughs> My wife Chris and I are, are staunch um, do-it-yourselfers, and over the years we have put together all kinds of stuff. Um, we've put together furniture and kitchen cabinets and toys and tools, you name it, we've tried to put it together. And I remember it's been a number of years ago, we were both in our 20s, and Chris said, hey, I think we could build a house. And I looked at her like, are you serious? Neither one of us had any construction experience. And so we jumped into that adventure, but we did learn this. It's best if you follow the written instructions. And there was one memorable time where we um, decided we were going to work on a project together. It's when our kids were really small, and it was um, on Christmas Eve, and this was our plan. We wanted to do something kind of off the charts to really surprise our kids. Um, our, our two oldest, David and Elizabeth, were just little, and we decided we were going to put together a swing set in the backyard in the dark on Christmas Eve. And the idea was, you know, they'll wake up in the morning, run in the backyard and go, whoa, this is amazing. So we're in the backyard, got the flashlight, got the instructions, you know, bolt B goes into slot A, and it's like, oh, are you kidding me? Our neighbors, you know, they're out there going, what are you guys doing? They thought we were a little crazy, but I'll tell you what, it was worth the sacrifice because that morning when the kids ran into the backyard, they were blown away by how cool it was. Just have this, you know, Swings that magically appear. But I'll tell you this, the only reason that we were able to accomplish our mission is because we did pay attention to the instructions in that little booklet. You might say this, that our success was because we built this swing set by the book. The title of today's message is Worship by the Book. And so what I want to do as we continue the series called The Heart of Worship is look at this book, God's book, and just draw out some really important principles about worship. And church family, I am so excited about this topic because worship is not just important, it's intensely practical. And we talked last week about the fact that we were made to worship God. God created us to love him. And, and worship, in fact, is expressing our love back to God. And we talked about this, that in worship we give God our attention, our affection, and our abilities. And even though worship is centered on God, there are some really important benefits to us. And two of those are mentioned in the Bible. We talked about this as well. God gives his people peace and strength when they get together to worship him. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you could use more peace in your life right now? How about more strength? I think we both, we, we all need both of those. And so as we come to worship God, we're reminded, you know what? We have a God who is strong. We have a God who is powerful. We have a God who's in charge. And when we realize that, we can let go of our worry and embrace God's peace. And we can realize, you know what? God will give me the strength I need to keep going no matter what. So worship really benefits us. So here's my plan for this morning. I want us to look at one particular psalm in the Old Testament. It's Psalm 95. And you'll see the verses printed there on your outline. They're also going to be on the screen. But can we do this? Can we read these opening verses together? Are you ready to do that? And church, let's, let's read these verses like we mean it this morning. All right? So are you ready? Let's read together. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. And let's do this. Let's read verses 4 and 5 as well. 
In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now, there are some very important principles in this psalm. And the first is this, that biblical worship involves a call to rejoice in God's sovereignty. A call to rejoice in God's sovereignty. When we say that God is sovereign, it means that he's in charge. He's in control of everything in his universe. And verse 4 says, In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And in this psalm, we're reminded that God is not only the creator of all these things, God's in charge of all these things. He's in charge of your life and my life. There's a a TV commercial that's produced by Allstate Insurance, and we've probably all heard it. This guy with a really low voice asks this question, are you in good hands? And of course, the implication is, man, if you're in good hands, you don't have to worry. If you're in good hands, you don't have to be afraid of anything. If you're in good hands, you can be really secure. In fact, here's the, uh, here's the Allstate logo right there. The Good Hands Company. Now, friends, when it comes to being in good hands, I want you to know there are no better hands that you could possibly be in than God's hands. And listen, when you're a child of God, nothing can come into your life that doesn't first pass through your Heavenly Father's hands. And that's one of the things that we celebrate in worship, that God is sovereign over everything in our lives. Now, I want to make a couple of observations about this idea that God's sovereign. And the first comes from the beginning of the psalm. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says this, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us. Do you get where I'm going with this? What's the word? Us. So worship is designed by God not just to be something we do individually, but together. And what it says on your outline is this, that worship is corporate. Worship is corporate. Now, can you worship God all by yourself? Nod your head, yes. Of course you can. And we talked about this last week. Can you worship God on the beach? On the golf course? In your backyard? Yeah, you can worship God anywhere. But God says you need to get together with other people in your church family and worship together. Because worship is about connection. And see, in worship, there's this vertical connection. We're connected to God, but who else are we connected to? Yeah, we're connected to other believers. Now, here's one of the things that I've noticed as a pastor. When when people begin to drift in their relationship with God, I often see a lack of commitment to corporate worship. And that's why it's so important for us to get together, because we're not just honoring God, we're encouraging each other. And I am so thankful when I'm here on a Sunday morning when I'm here typically on the front row or sometimes I'm even in the back of the room, but I am so encouraged when I hear people in my church family singing and praising God and pouring out their hearts and saying, God, we love you, we need you. And I hope that that really encourages you as well. And here's the thing. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you realize Christianity is not just Jesus and me, it's Jesus and we. We do this together. We follow Jesus Christ together. And listen, I just want to encourage you. Make corporate worship on the weekend a really high priority in your life. Let me say it this way. I would hope that you're here unless God keeps you from being here, unless you are providentially hindered, because we need the time to honor God and to encourage each other. Now, here's something else, another observation about worship, and this is on your outline too. Worship, by the book, is vocal and vibrant. Vocal and vibrant. 
Now look at verse 1 again. And by the way, we're going to get through all these verses. But verse 1 says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us, and what are the next two words? Shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. How many of you have ever shouted really loud at a sporting event? Oh, come on. How many of you have ever shouted so loud you lost your voice, couldn't talk? Okay? Because we get so excited. Well, in this psalm, we see this phrase, shout aloud. And, and Israel would shout to the Lord. In fact, some of you know there's a song by that title, Shout to the Lord. And they would do that before a, a battle. They would do it after a great victory. And there's a couple of places where it's really cool what happens when people shout to the Lord. One is the story of Jericho. You may recall they march around the, the city and they let out this incredible shout. And what happens to the walls of Jericho? Yeah, they collapse. That's a serious shout, wouldn't you say? And there's another time, this is in the book of 1 Samuel, where the, the Ark of the Covenant comes into the camp. And Israel is so excited, they let out this loud shout, and it says that the ground shook because they shouted so loud. I remember I was going to a worship service in Haiti one time. This is a number of years ago after the earthquake there. And we were walking through the, the part of the city to this church, and everywhere you looked, you could see devastation. You know, houses were demolished. We get to the church, and only part of the church was still standing. I mean, where there used to be a roof, there was daylight. You could see that, you know, the two walls were still standing, so that's where people had gathered for worship. And as we got there, it was really something. People were already singing really loud. And during the service, you could hear people shout. They were praising God because they knew that even though this earthquake had brought so much pain and suffering and devastation, God was still sovereign. God was still in charge of their lives, and they were praising God because of it. And church, let me say this. Every Sunday that we get together, there's something to shout about. There really is. I mean, listen, Jesus has won this incredible victory, a victory over sin, a victory over death, and when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you share that victory. And when we get together, we get to celebrate that Jesus Christ, by his victory, has settled our past, he's assured our future, and he gives us strength for today. And that's something worth getting excited about. You know, I was thinking as I was working on this message that, that people have had all kinds of different experiences in church when it comes to worship. Isn't that true? And, and I remember when I was a kid going to church, um, it was really interesting because the people in that church family didn't really express much outwardly in terms of their... Um, emotions. I mean, if you went to church at the church that my wife Chris and I went to when we were younger, you wouldn't hear people say amen when the preacher was preaching. You wouldn't hear people clap their hands. You wouldn't see people raise their hands. And so if you think about it right now, if you went to different churches in Palm Beach County, you would have different expressions of worship. And I've had the privilege of going to different countries um, going to Haiti and Honduras and Bolivia and Colombia and Nigeria and, and worshiping with Christians in different places. And it really is fascinating because, you know, there's different languages and different customs. But one of the things that I'm always struck by is that worship by the book is when we express our love to God. And that's what I've seen all over the world, Christians getting together and expressing their love to God. And one of the things that I wish we could do, I wish we could get into a time machine this morning. And instead of just talking about Psalm 95, we could go back to ancient Israel. We could actually be part of a worship service. Would that be cool or what? Because we would notice some things about that worship service because they're described in this psalm. And one of the things is this, and we'll talk about it in just a minute, that sometimes worship is quiet. 
Sometimes worship is very reverent. Other times, it is vocal and vibrant, like we just talked about. And one of the things you would notice if you went back in time and listened and participated in a worship service in Israel is that people were very expressive. And there's something that you would see them do. They would raise their hands to God. It was funny. Yesterday, I was watching TV, and I saw this commercial come on for... Um, can't remember what beer it was, but it was for beer and it was in a bar. And so you would see the TV screens and, you know, there was a sports event on and somebody scored a goal. What do you think people did instinctively? Yeah, what did we do? Yeah, we raise our hands, right? Um, you know, if there's something really good that happens, you got the job, you got the promotion, a baby is born, we just naturally raise our hands. And, and it's really interesting because when you look at the words that are written um, about praise in the Old Testament, there's a word that you encounter over and over. It's the word praise. But that word praise in the Hebrew is not one word. It's several different words. And one of those words is the word yada. And it simply means to extend your hands. And so when we read the Psalms and it says praise God, it's talking about raising your hands in praise to God. Let me just read one. It's Psalm 44, 8. It says this, In God we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name, we will yada your name, we will lift our hands and praise to you forever. Now that's really cool because you think about the fact that, you know, one day we're going to be in heaven worshiping together with people from all over the world, right? But what's one thing that we're going to experience? We're going to experience this idea of raising our hands in praise to God. Now church, here's what I want you to understand, because this is really important. There should be freedom of expression in worship. There, there should be, because worship is, is really pouring out our hearts to God. And, and I will say this from personal experience. You know, there are times in worship where I just want to be quiet. You know, there are times when I want to sit still, and, and I'm worshiping, I'm engaging with God, I'm thinking about God, I, I'm, you know, expressing my love to Him. I might even be praying silently when people around me are singing. But there needs to be the freedom to express our love to God in different ways. And, and other times, you know, we're just overcome and we just want to go, amen. You have the freedom here to do that, okay? Um, because the freedom is, is the thing that's so important. It says in the scripture that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And this is important. You know, there are some people that, that want to clap their hands. We should be free to clap our hands. There are people that want to raise their hands. We should be free to raise our hand or not raise our hands. It's the idea that God has, has uniquely made us as individuals. And he wants us to express our love to him. So that doesn't look like the same thing for everybody. Does that make sense, church? Listen, you can have unity in worship without uniformity in worship. Because God loves all kinds of expressions of worship. And, and I want our church to be a place where you feel free to worship God, to express your love to God as you're moved by God's spirit. Because that really is worship by the book, and it comes from our hearts. Now, that brings us to this next observation about biblical worship, that worship is centered on who? It's, it's centered on God. There was an article in the Palm Beach Post that I read, and it was about a church in our community that added another worship service. And let me just quote what the paper said. The church decided that in order to reach more people, it needed to add another show. Now, when I read that, I thought, okay, I, I get that because some people think about worship this way. What happens on stage, you know, the musicians and the vocalists, even the pastor, um, these are the performers, right? We're up here performing, and so the audience is the congregation. So where's God in all of this? 
Well, the idea is, you know, God's kind of off stage, right? God's behind the curtain. God is the prompter. He's prompting the people on stage to perform so that the audience benefits from what happens. But that's not a biblical paradigm, if you will. It's not a biblical model of worship. Because here's how the Bible describes worship. The people on stage are the prompters because they're leading us into worship. That is the role of our worship team, to lead us into worship. That's my role, to lead you into worship. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. Well, if that's the case, then what is the role of the people sitting where you are, the people in the seats out here? Well, you are actually, you may not realize this, but you're the performers in that model because you are doing what? You are expressing your love to an audience of one, and who is that audience of one? God. God. See, that's what worship is supposed to be about. And when you think about it, we talked about this last week, that the true worship is not just what you do on a Sunday morning. Worship is how you live your life. And God says, you know what? I am with you all the time. There was a Latin phrase, it's coram Deo. It means the face of God. We live before the face of God every single day. And that's what worship is. Living in such a way that you please and honor God. So that's the first thing that I want you to see. And here's the second, that worship by the book involves a call to reverence in our relationship with God. And that's what we see in verses 6 and 7. The psalm goes on and says this, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. I'm always intrigued by how the Bible says that, you know, God's a shepherd and we're sheep. And a few times I've brought the sheep that I keep in my office, um, Sally and She's on stage here. She was shy. She didn't want to come out of the office today, so didn't want to force the issue. But I wanted to make this observation about sheep today because I think this is so important. Psalm 23, um, this is King David because he was Israel's shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. He makes me lie down where? In green pastures. Did you know that a sheep won't lie down unless two things happen? The sheep has to have a full stomach and the sheep can't be afraid. Isn't that interesting? Because what's the job of a shepherd? To feed the sheep, to provide for the sheep, and to protect the sheep. Because the sheep's never going to lie down unless that happens. So what does that mean about God as a shepherd? Well, his role is to protect our souls and to provide everything we need to accomplish his purpose for us. And it's that relationship that becomes so important in worship. Because if we're really going to worship God, we have to understand this, that God is a shepherd who personally cares for his sheep. He personally cares for a sheep. And this idea runs throughout the Bible. If you go back to this Old Testament book of Ezekiel, um, there's a section there where God is really, really ticked off because the religious leaders who are supposed to be shepherds to God's people are falling down on the job. They're taking advantage of God's sheep, and God says, you know what? I'm coming down there. I'm going to come, and I'm going to care for my sheep. So how does God do that? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd. And Jesus said, I came to seek and to save those who were lost. I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel is how Jesus described his mission because Jesus knows that we are like sheep, that we wander away, that there's a separation between us and God caused by our sin. And, and if we're left to ourselves, we will surely die and remain separated from God forever. So Jesus has to come and search for us and find us. And that's what Jesus says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's who we are. 
And that is the story. That is the good news because Jesus lays down his life on a cross after living a perfect life. And he says, look, if you will trust me with your life, I will pay for your sins and give you a new life. And that's what Jesus proves by rising from the dead. And when you become a Christian, it's amazing. When you're adopted into God's family, you are now in what? You're in really good hands, right? And because you're in good hands, God wants you to get to know him better and better. You're his son. You're his daughter. He wants you to know him. And here's the thing. And let me just show you this point on your outline because this is, this is where I'm headed with this idea. The depth of our reverence for God, and this is about worship, the depth of our reverence for God is dependent on the depth of our relationship with God. Because when you become a follower of Jesus, God wants you to get to know him better and better. And follow this logic. The better you know God, the more you will trust God. Makes sense, right? And the more you trust God, the more willing you are to obey God. And that brings us to this last point on your outline, that worship by the book involves a call to respond to God's voice with obedience. A call to respond to God's voice with obedience. Now, if you're a parent this morning, let me ask you this. Do you want your children to obey you? Do you want them to listen to, the, <laughs> to your voice? You can say, yeah, I really do. All right. When do you want them to obey you? I really mean it this time. One, two, two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Total tempo. All the time, right? And the first time. Now, what do you think about God in terms of his kids? When God says something to his church family, when does he want us to obey him? Yeah, right away. And so what we're going to see now in this psalm is really kind of a change in, in mood, if you will, because it starts out with this excitement and exuberance, you know, shout aloud to the Lord, and, and then it talks about come and bow down, and now God is going to do this. He's actually going to give his people a warning. And so we need to take a look at this, because he says this in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. And we'll talk about what's going on there with those references. But notice what God says to his people. He says, for 40 years, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Man, that's pretty serious. That's pretty sobering that God would say that to his people. But why? Well, look at this statement in your outline. Worship without obedience, without listening to God's voice, is worthless to God and dangerous for us. Why is it dangerous for us? Because if you hear God's voice and you don't obey, you'll get a hard heart. And that's what God wants you to guard yourself against by doing what he says. Now, let me just clarify um, those verses because there's some important context here. Um, one is a story from Exodus chapter 17. And if you just do a quick rewind, you go back to Exodus 14. A huge event takes place. Israel is delivered. Um, Pharaoh's army is pursuing them. God parts the Red Sea. They get through. Chapter 15, there's this great celebration. I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like. But they're singing a song, and it was written by Moses. It's called the Song of Moses. And then you get to chapter 16, and the celebration continues because now God is doing what he promised. He's providing for them. You know, there's manna falling from the sky, and there's quail. There's all this food to eat. But you get to chapter 17, and now Israel is really, really ticked off at God. And they're grumbling, and they're complaining because they don't have any water. 
And they're saying, Moses, why'd you bring us out here in the desert to die and to kill our kids? And Moses tries to reason with Israel and say, look, you know, you're not just grumbling against me, you're grumbling against God. And you know how they respond? They want to stone Moses to death. So God intervenes and he says, okay, Moses, um, there's a rock, I want you to hit it with your staff. And when you do, water's going to come out and people will be able to get something to drink. And that's exactly what happens. Now, the place that this happens, Meribah and Massah, the Hebrew terms mean grumbling and testing. And it was there that people grumbled against God and tested God. Now, there's another story that's connected with Psalm 95, and I think this is one of the saddest stories in the whole Bible. It's from the book of Numbers. And if you, if you look at what's going on, some of you know the story of Israel, that they wander around for 40 years in the desert, and they all die, except for the spies who had been faithful. So now you've got the next generation of Israelites. And they're right there on the Jordan River, poised to enter the promised land. And they have seen God do incredible things, but you know what they're doing? They're grumbling and they're complaining because they don't think God's going to come through and they're thirsty. And God says to Moses, you know, this isn't the first time this has happened. God says to Moses, I want you to speak to the rock and water will come out. Well, by this time, Moses is livid. He is so angry. And he's angry at the people because they just won't listen to God and they're stubborn and rebellious and complain all the time. And, and instead of speaking to the rock, some of you know what he does. What does he do? He hits it with his staff, not once, but twice. And water comes out because God is gracious. But God says, Moses, because you didn't listen to my voice, you're not going to enter the promised land. And Moses dies. Now, God lets him go up and see the promised land from a distance, but there are serious consequences to not obeying the voice of the Lord. And, and I believe, church, for us, that's something that's a sobering reality. And here's what I want us to think about. When we come to worship God, God has a message for us. And I, I pray this every single Sunday. When I get up early on Sunday morning, I say, God, would you please encourage us? Would you please challenge us? Would you please speak to us and change our hearts and change our lives and change our church? And God is always willing to do that. The question is, are we willing to listen and obey? Because when we come here on a Sunday morning, you know, it could be that there's something that I say from the platform here, but it's God speaking through me. And, and listen, church, I want you to realize this. Every single Sunday that I'm speaking, these are not just my ideas. This message, as is every message, is based squarely on Scripture because God speaks to us through his word. And God can speak to us through the music that we hear. You know, God might um, speak to you through a conversation that you have with somebody on a Sunday morning. We should always be in this posture, Lord, do you want to say something to me today? Give me ears to hear you. Now, here's, here's something important. How do you tell us God? How do you know that's not just your own idea or somebody else's idea? Well, you have to measure it against Scripture because God doesn't contradict himself. If God is speaking to you, it will be consistent with what God says in his word. And I've had so many of you over the years come to me and say, you know, um, we were at church and, and I really knew that God was speaking to me. I knew that he was calling me to forgive that person that had hurt me so deeply. I knew that God was calling me to serve um, in this particular area of ministry, I knew that God was calling me to, to, to follow Jesus. And here's the thing. When we hear God's voice and obey God's voice, it brings rest to our soul. It really does. And that's the last thing that I want you to see this morning, that worship with obedience brings rest to your soul.
I think about the incredible invitation of Jesus when he looks at a crowd of people. And I think that crowd was probably a lot like us. People who needed help. People who needed hope. And he says, it's come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that that invitation still stands. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to come to you. I pray that you would help us to hear your voice, Father. I pray that you would give us the faith to obey you. Because, Lord, in doing that, we find the peace that we so desperately want and need. And God, I pray this, that as we learn more and more about worship, that we would actually take these things and put them into practice, not just on Sundays, God, but throughout the week, that we will keep our eyes on you, that we will give you our attention and our affection and our abilities, God. And Father, I pray this. I pray for the person who maybe this morning is hearing you speak to them, and what you're saying is, trust me. Trust me. Believe in Jesus. I want you to be in good hands. And listen, if, if that's what you're sensing this morning, then I just would encourage you to talk to God and say, God, I need you. I really do. I, I failed you in so many ways, but I want a new life. I need a new life. So God, would you please forgive me? Because I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins and that he came back to life. And God, I need the life that only Jesus can give me. Father, you always, always answer that prayer. And Lord, I pray for our church that we would just grow in our love for you, God, in our ability to just express that love here on Sunday mornings, that you give us a freedom to do that in, in the ways that you lead us to. And God, most of all, I pray that our worship would bring more and more joy to your heart. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.